Greetings, everybody out there in dreamland. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. You are listening to the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Broadcasting to you from the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast, the third coast of Texas. The darkest truths from the darkest web need to be told. And you must listen to the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Tower, 
which was controlling communication on the north, north end of White Sands. Those were the you know, late days of World War II. The atom bomb had been exploded there about you know, over three weeks later before. The, they had seen the explosion. They were within the perimeter, you know, the enlarged perimeter of uh, White Sands. So uh, they were well used to the military operations in the area. That communication tower was both for civilian and military airplanes guiding them around the mountain. The, after the, it crashed into the tower, the object um, got to the ground. It didn't exactly crash. It, it kept its integrity. It didn't blow up into pieces the way an airplane would have. It was apparently very strong. The tower was bent, but the object kept going. It came to the ground, and it plowed an avenue all the way down the hill. They made a turn, apparently under power, and stopped against a, a, a bump of terrain. The kids saw that. Um, now, remember, this was 1945, August 1945, two years before Roswell. There was no concept of flying saucers. You know, Kenneth Arnold would come up with that term in July of in, in July, August 47 is when all that thing about flying saucers came up. So uh, there was no concept of something like that. And also the object wasn't a saucer. The object was shaped like an like an egg, like an avocado. You know, they of, of course spoke Spanish. And the, the term they used was an avocado, about the size of two trucks. So this was, it's hard to say that it didn't happen. I mean, obviously it did happen. I mean, that tower was bent. Um, they, there were the traces on, on the ground. The kids knew that the first thing to do in a case like this, again, was the end of the war, was to help the, the pilots of whatever that thing was. So they rushed down. The vegetation is on fire. The brush is on fire. The object is not on fire, contrary to what some, some books have said. But the, we have all the details, because with you know, Paola Harris was the first to know about the case. She interviewed both of the witnesses, with, who by then were in their 70s, and uh, I've had a chance with, with her over the last four years to re-interview uh, Mr. Padilla, Jose Padilla, uh, who is still very much alive, has a, an extremely good memory, <coughs> which I envy. I, I don't have a good memory. And uh, he, you know, we've reconstructed everything. And we found a third witness. And we found a fourth witness. There was a bomber. Uh, that was uh, coming in for a landing at Alamogordo. Alamogordo is the air base inside White Sands, which is an enormous area, as you know. And um, he was told by the, the control tower to take a look at the communication tower because they had lost communication with the north end of the range. So he circles the tower. He says the tower 
has been hit by something, so it confirms what the witnesses are telling us. Uh, and then he sees the, the, the fire and the smoke, so he circles the, the object. He describes the, <coughs> that there is an object there, and two little Indians. Well, they are not Indians, you know, but the, uh, they are there with their horses. So we, we have a check from everything. And the, uh, the two kids look at the object. They are shocked to see there is an opening. Apparently, there is one panel that has been ejected when the thing hit the tower. Through that opening, they see three beings, three creatures inside. And I've had a chance to go through the transcripts that Paola recorded. Sometimes they talk about little men. Sometimes they talk about creatures. So I asked Jose, you know, how come you, you can't tell if they are creatures or men? Well, they were short. They were about the same size as the kids, about four feet tall. Uh, they were humanoid. They were breathing the air. They didn't have, you know, a helmet or a mask or anything else. Uh, they had uh, uh, sharp eyes. They had almost no mouth and no very little nose. And they were they were wearing coveralls uh, that looked gray. And they were they stayed inside the object. So the kids saw them through that opening, sort of being apparently very agitated, very worried about. But they were not apparently not hurt. So they watch this for a while, and then they say they have to report it to somebody. The, the older kid, Jose, wants to go inside and help. The younger kid, uh, Remy, uh, doesn't want anything to do with it. He's very scared. He's crying. He's terrified. They decide to, the, the important thing is to report it, which is true. They get on their horses. They go home. They report it to their father, and the father calls the state police. And the state police is going to come there, you know, uh, 48 hours later with the father and with the kids. So we have, that's essentially the stage. Paula was the first to know about the case and to interview both, both of the witnesses and to gather the information. And then she brought me in to look at the technical aspects of it. And we've been working on it for four years. I've gone there five times. So, Jacques, you, you co-wrote the book with Paolo Harris, a well-known uh, UFO investigator. How is it the two of you came together and decided to work on this and, and dig deeper? Well, about a year before, I had started to look at <coughs> other cases in New Mexico where there was an opportunity to, uh, we thought, to recover some hardware. Uh, or at least some samples. Um, as you know, there are a half a dozen crash sites in New Mexico. Um, through colleagues of mine and, and uh, the scientists at Stanford, uh, we had access to a, a, a site that had been kept very quiet, very secret. And we, we were going there with uh, you know, metal detectors and shovels to dig up something, and in fact, we found um, 
a number of things that we were bringing up, bringing back to the lab to test it. Um, I had a, a friend who was very interested in this, who lived in New Mexico, and who told me there is another case that you should look at. And uh, he invited me to uh, to look into, you know, this case in San Antonio, New Mexico. I didn't know much about the case. Uh, he didn't tell me much. He told me that that was a case that was linked to the end of World War II and to the atom bomb. And uh, it took me uh, to the uh, Owl Cafe, which is a, now a you know, very notorious place uh, near San Antonio. It's San Antonio, New Mexico, not right. San Antonio, Texas. And uh, I had a good time there, uh, absorbing the atmosphere. Of course, that was a place where the scientists from Project Manhattan came to have dinner. And so the, that little, little place in the middle of nowhere was serving hamburgers and you know, selling, uh, selling produce and so on to the scientists when they were in the middle of their, the preparation for the bomb. Nobody knew, of course, who they were, but they were, you know, Enrico Fermi, Oppenheimer, you know, Nobel Prizes, people from all over the place, from all over Europe and, and America, working on finishing and testing the bomb. So that was a very, you know, impressive and humbling experience. I became aware that Paula had already researched the case and uh, had put some of her interviews on, on record. So that's when, when I decided to call her and then we, we got together. Uh, the idea was that I had access to analysis, I had access to scientists who could help me look at any data we could get. So that would you know, augment the research she had done, interviewing the witnesses at the site. So she introduced me to Mr. Padilla, and Mr. Padilla took us to the site several times and explained the situation. You know, there are a lot of uh, alleged crash sites. You mentioned there are six in New Mexico. There are others all over the world. And the stories, the reports uh, dug up by different investigators have varying degrees of credibility. Is that part of why you stayed a, sort of stayed away from the subject, at least in public? Because, you know, for example, Roswell, the granddaddy of them all, for me, even though as much time as I spend on this, it becomes sort of muddled with all the disinformation from government people and then bad information from UFO folks. It's a slog to get through this stuff. Yes. Well, I, my reference for Roswell was always uh, Stanton Friedman's book, because Stanton was you know, an atomic physicist, and, uh, and uh, he, he was very good at tracking down stories into the archives, of official archives. But you're right, I mean, it's still, you know, when you talk to scientists about that, they say, fascinating story, I, I'm ready to believe you, you know. I know your reputation, you're not crazy, but you haven't given me anything I can take back to the lab and test. Okay. This case helps with the credibility of Roswell because we found details about the, the, the material that has been recovered there, including some material from inside the object, from inside the craft. You know, 
that uh, we can test, and we're do we're doing that now. So it's very. And by the way, we're going to go into that at a conference that Paula is is organizing, uh, November 11, 12, 13, in uh, in Laughlin, in in Nevada, and uh, I'll be there. And uh, we're going to talk about the, the, the details of, of all of that. The, the important thing with that case also is that the kids were there for the following 10 days. It was their land, you know. And we know everything that the, the army did. I mean, the army was not prepared to recover something like this. Once they, they realized that it was real, they, it wasn't their, their property. It wasn't public property, you know. They really belonged to the, the father of uh, Mr. Padilla. So they uh, they went to the house and they asked. And again, in, in researching this, you know, I rediscovered a part of history of American history. I mean, forget the UFO. I mean, you know, we'll, we can talk about that separately. But the historical data about the end of the war, about Japan, about the capitulation of Japan, about what would have happened if we hadn't had the atom bomb, about the, the testing of the atom bomb, which was not a test, was a full-scale atom bomb. It was equal to the, in power, to the one that uh, destroyed Nagasaki, Japan, okay, after Hiroshima. I, I didn't realize all of that. I didn't realize the science, all the, the details of the science that had gone into this, how the testing was done, I, I had to, to learn all that. So fortunately, you know, now it's over 50 years after the, the A-bomb, and uh, a number of very good historical books have come out. So I bought all those books, and I read them cover to cover, and that sort of brought me, you know, brought me up to date. The, the kids had seen the... the explosion of the atom bomb. Uh, Jose's mother had been blinded in one eye by the, the explosion because she she heard the, the, the sound and she looked over the horizon and she saw this and the, the power of the, the light blinded her in one eye. So this is real. I mean, the, the army people who came to talk to the father of uh, Senor Padilla was speaking Spanish. You know, I mean, the, the officers, the army officers who were there in New Mexico, of course they were bilingual, you know, and the conversations were in Spanish. And part of the population was Indian, was American Indian. So we've reconstructed all of this. And, you know, all the books about Trinity, they talk about, you know, Professor Oppenheimer, they talk about Dr. Enrico Fermi, they talk about the physics. They forget everybody. Well, the, the physicists were there for four years, and then they went back to the University of Chicago or wherever, you know, teaching atomic physics after that. The, the people who were there, they stayed there, you know, and the population had been exposed to a lot of radioactivity, the same amount of radioactivity that was exposed at Nagasaki. And nobody knows that. Nobody talks about that. Everybody says there was a test. Well, a test in science is, you, you know, you take a little vial 
and you, you mix a couple of liquids and, and then you, you take a spectrum or a photograph. And that's a test. And if it works, you get a patent and so on. This was not a test. This was an explosion at ground level, which is the worst thing they could have done. And after, after uh, you know, the uh, project Manhattan <coughs> White Sands, they reset the explosion of the bomb in altitude to minimize radioactivity in Japan. So the, 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 the Japanese, I don't think the Japanese are going to send flowers you know, to, the, to the US Army because of that, but they wanted to minimize the radioactivity on the ground. That's not what the bomb was supposed to, I mean, that, was a, that wasn't the main military use of the bomb. The bomb was, it was a heat and the explosion. It wasn't the radioactivity. And at that test, you know, 20 miles from that, that property, 20 miles from that, that, uh, that land, uh, is where they realized the mistake of blowing the, the bomb on the ground. Also, the bomb was four times more powerful than the calculations we had done. Okay. So, so, you know, learning that to me was... It was, for, for a scientist like me, it's like a dream, you know, to be able to, to get that information, much of which comes from the army, army brochures. It's not in any books, you know, it's in, uh, but now, now it's in, uh, in our book, you know, in, uh, in, the, in the Trinity book. So uh, we learned a lot as, as a result of that and we were humbled by the experience. The army had to make a break in the fence. So they had to ask permission to do that, to open the fence. The, the, Mr. Padilla said, well, there is an opening for the cattle. You know, why don't you use that? They said, no, uh, we, need, we need a bigger opening. We need a bigger truck. So I had a little fight with Paola because I wanted to know what kind of truck it was. And she said, why do you need to know that? I mean, that's not the story. You know, the stories of little kids, but they saw the aliens, I mean, the craft. I said, yeah, but, you know, I need to know the weight of the craft. And the truck is going to tell me, you know, how much the, the craft weighed it. The, the kids tried to move it. Remember, they were there, even when the soldiers went for lunch or dinner, you know, the, the kids were there on the property. They, they knew how to ride. They would leave their horses in the back. They were fascinated day after day after day. And in the book, there's a table, you know, of what happened every day on the property. And uh, so the, the human story is extraordinary. And the physics story is extraordinary because on the last day, the, there was nobody watching the, the object. The object was on the truck. By the way, the truck was an 18-wheeler. So the thing was not a weather balloon. The, the, the army officer who came in to talk to the father said, you know, we need to recover our weather balloon. And he said, oh, you know, I've got weather balloons for you because the, the property is 80,000 acres. And, you know, White Sands was launching weather balloons every day to know the direction of the wind and so on for, for the, the, you know, the aircraft. By the way, there was no air force at the time. You know, they were pilots, but they were attached to the army. It was the army air force. We're two years away from, you know, the President Truman uh, declaring, you know, the, the, an independent 
came from, from America. So the, uh, he had weather balloons that he was picking up that he was keeping to return them to the army. And so he brought them an armful of, of weather balloons. And they said, no, no, uh, it's a special weather balloon. Well, the, my estimation is between four and a half tons and five tons. Again, the kids tried to move it when it was on the truck, ready to go. It was on the side, because if it had been upright, it wouldn't have gone under the, the overpass on the highway. You know, they, they, uh, the, the Trans-America Highway that goes, goes through San Antonio. And uh, so they could see the underside. And in the underside, there was no opening. And there were no propellers. There were no jets. There was no opening. What makes it work? I mean, what's the propulsion system? So that case is a treasure for us, you know, back in California, in Silicon Valley. It's a treasure of, of information. We know the weight. We know the dimensions. The kids measured it. No, they were, they were, they were clever kids. And you grew up quickly in those days, you know. Now, I'm almost as old as Mr. Padilla. You know, he's 85. I'm 82. I was born in 1939 in occupied France. I remember the end of the war. I remember, my, you know, my parents' house being destroyed by a bomb. I remember watching, you know, the Germans shooting down American planes. I mean, there was no place to hide. I, I saw that. Okay, so in in those days, uh, you know, I was five, five and a half by the end of the war in Europe. War in Japan wasn't finished. So you, you have to go back to those days to, to really understand what went on. Kids were growing up quickly then. You know, I mean, this was serious. This was serious for them. This was not a joke. And their memory, this was seared into their memory. And we, we were able to check it very well because one of their cousins was younger. And she came to that, that land, uh, you know, several years later when... Uh, so by then, the, the two young men had grown up and gone on, but she was there with the father, and the father was still picking up objects, you know, that on the in, on the property that had strange physical properties that are very similar to what was recovered two years later in Roswell. So we have a continuity now, and it gives us a point of, you know, the, the starting point for the, the UFO crashes and landings. In the United States, it didn't start in 47. It started in New Mexico on the land of Project Manhattan in August 1945. Um, the, the witnesses, the, the kids who walk up to this craft, it digs a big trench and it's got a, in the land, and then there's, a, there's a, a hole in it. They see three creatures inside that are alive. They That's had an emotional response that was seemingly generated, right? They, uh, again, I had the benefit of the transcripts that uh, Paula had recorded. Uh, I, I've learned in, you know, my, my work with computers, with the internet and so on, at uh, analyzing transcripts and terms, terms that people use and so on, because we, 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 we built one of the very early, uh, you know, social networks on the internet. My team did it. 
So we, we analyze the behavior of people using a computer conferencing system for the first time. And the, the terms they use, again, are very interesting. Obviously, they were, I mean, they were there to try to help, quote, the pilots. They realize that there are no pilots. There are these creatures. The creatures don't look at them, but their mind fills up with images that seem to come from... So there is a form of communication that they've never experienced before. And they are going to have dreams, recurrent dreams, for several years after that. And Mr. Padilla told me that for about three years, he would wake up in sweat in the middle of the, of the night, going back to that time and seeing things falling from the sky and, and seeing you know, people dying and all that. A feeling of tragedy, and then he would wake up. Okay. The, those images stay with them, and that's why the little one is crying, doesn't want to go anywhere close. Uh, Jose Padilla told us, you know, I wanted to go there, but you know, if I had gone there, I wouldn't be here talking to you. You know, I wouldn't be giving this interview now. And uh, that 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 was very powerful. And, as, as you know very well, George, uh, that's something that you, you hear in many cases of that form of sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, telepathic or psychic communication with the people who are close to these objects. Um, I think we got time for one more question before we have to shut down here. Uh, so, yeah, they had an emotional response, not only of their own, uh, their own reaction to the scene, but seemingly they had a mind melt with these beings. Are there similar cases around the world where uh, that has happened before? So in, in the book, and again, the, before we go, the book is called Trinity, the best kept secret. The best kept secret because the kids were too impressed to talk about it for over 50 years. And for other reasons we could go into, this is not, this was never reported to the Air Force. So this is not in Blue Book. Dr. Heineck never knew about this case. You know. It went to the atomic secrets, which are kept separate from all the other secrets in the United States. This never came out. Okay. So we would never know about it if Paola had not done that interview. Now, in the book, uh, we talk about two other cases, the one in Socorro, that you know well, and I know well, because I, I studied it with Dr. Heineck uh, at Northwestern at the time. And uh, a case in France at Valençon that had also that type of communication. But the witness there was a, a former uh, soldier of the resistance in France. You know, he was in his 40s by then. Uh, this is a, a case in 1968. Uh, July 1st, 1968, when, um, you know, he was faced again with an oval object in, in Socorro. It's not a flying saucer. It's an avocado. In Valençon in France, you know, in the Alps, in, at the foot of the Alps in France, it's also, you know, an egg-shaped object, all three. And there is a, a figure in, in the book comparing them, comparing the dimensions. So those are not flying saucers. And, uh, and in all three cases, there is that, that psychic impulse that the, the witnesses don't quite know how to deal with. 
We're talking with Jacques Vallée about a book he co-wrote with Paula Harris, Trinity, The Best Kept Secret. Jacques, in 1945, the Trinity bomb goes off. The world has changed forever. A month later, something comes looking uh, at that site. Something shows up at that site looking around. Does it make sense to you that a non-human intelligence, wherever it's from, would be interested in what was going on in, in New Mexico back then? given that so so many different sites uh, in in that state were doing atomic projects and testing missiles and things of that sort. And intelligence, even human intelligence, would be interested in it, but, but a non-human intelligence, wherever it's from, would want to check this out. This this test, in effect, could have been like a beacon announcing to the, to the universe that we've arrived in the atomic age. This was a turning point in human history. You know, in uh, 10,000 or 100,000 years of, of human development, of civilization development, there had never been anything like it. There had been wars, there had been things like that, but never something of that, of that power that could be seen from outer space, could be detected. Is that the reason why that, that object showed up? The fact is that uh, ever since we have not used an atomic bomb in war. It was very tempting to, you know, terminate the, you know, the war in Korea with a bomb. Uh, it must have been very tempting to use, uh, you know, other types of atomic, of nuclear weapons uh, in, in war. Came very, very close to that at Cuba, uh, you know, uh, during the Cuban crisis. Um, st another story that hasn't been told very much uh, when it came within minutes of, of a nuclear exchange in Cuba. Uh, so, um, the, you know, the reason is that because there was that form of communication. I mean, this was something that the army did not miss. They had, the thing was deposited there. There was no explanation for, believe me, we've tried to think of every way this could be a hoax. <laughs> but you don't hoax, you know, a flying avocado weighing five tons that's going to hit a ta communication tower, take it out of c communication, and then land under power and uh, essentially create an avenue the size of a football field under power, you know, and I mean, what kind of hoax is that? I mean, if you could do that, think of all the other things you could do rather than uh, joking about it. Um, again, we have two witnesses who were smart, who had binoculars to follow everything that was going on. They knew how to use it. Those were professional binoculars. Why, why did the kids have binoculars? Well, you know, people say, well, you know, kids are playing with binoculars. They were not playing with binoculars. That the, the property is 80,000 acres and you have, you have cattle there. They needed to read the brands on the, on the cattle from a distance. So those were good, as good as the army binoculars. And they knew how to use them. And they were passing the binoculars back and forth to check on what they were seeing. Those were excellent observers. Uh, Mr. Padilla went on to be a highway patrolman. 
after being at war in Korea. He has two bullets in his body, one from the war and one from uh, someone that he was arresting, you know, as a, as a cop in California, as a highway patrol officer. Uh, these are serious people. This, this is not a joke. The, the reason, so, um, I, I asked him, you know, again, it was, to me, it was just an extraordinary experience to work, you know, to have the opportunity to work with Paola on this case, to, to meet the witnesses, uh, Mr. Padilla and uh, uh, Sabrina Padilla, who came in later, gave us uh, the other information. Um, I, I asked Mr. Padilla, why was it so important for you to go in and, and get something? Because he he went into the uh, last day. The beings were gone. We don't know where they went. If they were taken by the army or if they were recovered by their own kind or whatever. There is a gap of 24 hours where we don't know what happened. The, and, and they found a, a bracket. I mean, he found, I mean, Jose was alone inside, described the, the inside to me very you know, precisely. The, there was a panel on the, the, the wall of the object, which <coughs> had been there because the army had cleaned up everything, of course, that they could find. But this was, you know, attached to the, the wall of the object, and there was a bracket that you could turn, and he managed to, to get it, you know, to rip it out, and uh, went away with it. But we have it. He donated it to us, and we're going to be donating, donating it to a university for further study. Well, I, I said, why was that so important? And he said, well, in those days, everybody was wanted to have a souvenir. Now, up to then, you know, we've spoken occasionally Spanish and most of the time English. Souvenir is a French word. And that struck me, you know, why, why do you call that a souvenir? He said, well, you know, so many people died in the war. They were not coming back. You know, brothers, uncles, fathers. And it was very important for a family. In many cases, they couldn't get the body. It was very important for the family to have something to remember them by. And that's what we call a souvenir. So, you know, that's how that French word sort of came into, into the language in New Mexico in 1945, where nobody spoke French. And so that, those are the little things that are important, you know, should be important to a historian. They called it a treasure, too, right? A Spanish word. Yes, tesoro. They call it the tesoro. And it's a, it's, it's a cool story in the book, uh, Trinity, uh, about how they held on to that. They put it to use for all these years. They had a use for that piece that out of a, a crash vehicle. Yes, well, they were hiding it. Uh, they, what, what's interesting, well, so we, we're fighting about with my, my colleagues about whether this thing is important or not. Um, it's a bracket, and you, similar to many brackets you can buy, you know, for as part of a, a well. You know, in fact, I, I, you know, I bought one. This is kind of heavy. Uh, I, 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 
it's usually the you know the alloy of aluminum or something else. Uh, you know, this one I got from a, a you know a shop. So they they turn around an axis and they activate their actuators here that are attached to different parts of a well or you know a a particular machine. So those things have been around since the 30s or the 40s, 1930s, 1940s. And so it's not very unusual. Um, the question is, what was it doing there? So my theory is, well, the army brought it, you know, to wind up something, maybe a, a you know, a wire for, to work at night or whatever. You know, this there is no electricity there, but the jeeps. I used to have a jeep. Uh, you know, to do my, my own UFO investigations, and the jeep can generate power. I mean, it was it was bringing power to the battlefield and so on. So um, that could have come from that. They could have needed power inside the object to clean it up or whatever they did inside at night. The, my my friends disagree because there are some very very unusual aspects to that that bracket. Uh, yeah, you can buy a bracket almost like it, you know, at some some hardware store. But this is a little bit different. So we're still investigating that and arguing about that. So there is research being done on, on that, that instrument. The, the kids kept, they picked up some pieces of what they just, it's sort of like memory foil, um, foil similar to Roswell. They picked up that. They, they put some of it to work in a windmill, right? They stashed it away and then they had it on the windmill. Yes, they, they found a strip of memory metal and at one time there was the the father, it it, it was a, a water mill uh, for, you know, a well. And uh, the, the, the father told them to try to fix some parts that were not working and they couldn't fix it and the shop couldn't fix it and they thought of this memory metal they, they wrapped it up around the, ac the axle and put the thing back together, and it worked for many years. It, it, so, yes, there was a, unfortunately, we don't have it now. But if you remember, I mean, that shows up also at Roswell. Um, and there are, we could trace it to some, there, there were a few places in the U.S. that were looking for that kind of material, you know, Battelle Memorial, Institute has been very involved in the UFO study on the dark side. And, uh, you know, they, uh, they developed a, a type of memory metal that, that's much like that. The question is, would it have been, you know, in existence at Roswell, 1947, maybe? Uh, 1945? Well, you know, that's really pushing it. Did we have that kind of technology, or, or is it alien technology? We don't know. We don't know that. So we're continuing to look to look into that with, with in the lab now, in, in a real lab. The army came looking for scraps and pieces and asking people, "Hey, did you find any?" They they wanted it back, right? They wanted it back, and that's what makes us think that that it's not just another bracket, you know, that you can get at, at a hardware store in, in New Mexico somewhere. Uh, the, the dimensions, you know, there are holes, and, and this is not the real one, 
but in the real world there are holes like, like this for an axle and so on. The dimensions are in centimeters. They are in the uh, in the metric system. The army, U.S. Army, was not using the metric system in any parts that they had in 1945. So it, it wasn't an army part. It could have come from Mexico. Mexico, I believe, uses the, uh, the metric system based on the French you know, trains and so on. But the, uh, that's, that's very curious. So, you know, we, we're not at the end of that. We're at the beginning of that, that study. And the, the book, again, Trinity, is, is just talking about the, the beginning of it. Um, we, we have a lot of work to do still. You went to the site multiple times. You yes. looked for bits and pieces. Did you find bits and pieces somewhere in the ground? Uh, no, uh, but we we heard many you know accounts. For another thing that that they found was a sort of angel hair. They call it angel hair or, or light fiber. Well, it, it's not a light fiber like we use now in communication. Remember the book by Colonel Corso. Sure. Colonel Corso describes some of the same things. So we know, again, the kids are not lying. But Corso talks about that stuff from Roswell and other places two years later. Now, we have references to that in 1945. That's important. The, the kids used it for to decorate uh, Christmas trees. Because it glowed, it glowed in the dark. Well, you know, the f fiber today, uh, you know, an electronic fiber doesn't glow in the dark. You know, you put a little bit of light at one end, it comes out at the other at the speed of light, some fraction of the speed of light. So it's great for the computer. But if you look at the fiber, you're not going to see the fiber glowing. So, and also it wasn't a fiber, straight fiber. It was a bundle. Like, like a spider web of fibers that were glowing. Uh, there were other things that were glowing like that that may have been irradiated. So, but if it, they were irradiated, why would they have still glow, you know, five years later? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, so, again, uh, we're, in, in terms of physics, it's extremely interesting. There's a, there's a, where the craft came to rest, there was a noticeable indentation there in the ground that you could see for a long time. And That's as you note in the book, uh, Trinity, somebody came in and point and planted a bunch of these these plants that are poisonous. They are poisonous and they are poisonous to, to cattle. So why would you... I, I could understand wanting to keep people away from it. I mean, people who've gone there, there are some people from Newfound who have brought there to to help in the investigation. They came back with rashes, you know. Uh, Jose Padilla still has a rash on his arm, you know, that's sort of permanent, uh, like a, a, a scar. So those plants were very poisonous. They are not used anywhere else. I mean, they are not native to New Mexico. Why would you go to the trouble to put a plant like that where it could actually harm the cattle? And, uh, the, uh, we don't we don't know why that was there. It's not there now. Um, but they've also brought dirt on top of that. So now anything that would have been at the surface then is under 15 feet of dirt now. And, uh, 
Uh, I don't think the state of New Mexico is going to let you bring a bulldozer and level that up because it's at a place where if it washes off, it's going to take a lot of debris over the highway, you know, which is, you know, transcontinental highway. So they, there are a number of earth dams, you know, all over the place. If you've ever been in a downpour in New Mexico, you know that, that, can, be, that can be pretty bad. A lot of interest in metamaterials, uh, pieces picked up from alleged crash sites. Uh, you know, there's always been interest in that, but it's, it's heightened right now. You've been involved very quietly in this work for a long time and testing samples. Can you give me your general sense of how promising that is? And does a, does a piece have to be unobtainable? to be important. It doesn't have to be element 115 or some undiscovered element in order to be important and suggest that it's not ours, that somebody else made it or used it. Well, uh, element 115 has been discovered. Yes. The, the problem is it only exists for one millionth of a second, you know, so that's, uh, I don't think you can buy a bucket of it. But the, uh, I've had that discussion again with, with scientists who know more about materials than I do. It's a very complex, it's a very complex area. The, the, the fight I have with them is, look, the most advanced car in the world is the, the Toyota hydrogen car, which I can, I can buy, you know, down the road here in San Francisco. Uh, and I've looked at it. The, when it was demonstrated by the president of Toyota on the stage, the car was there and the car was running. And the president of Toyota explained, you know, the technology that went into the car and why this was eliminated the need for, you know, all these poisonous batteries that we, you know, we talk about the battery as being good for the environment. Well, the, the car is clean, but the battery isn't. The battery has lead and cadmium and things that, you know, will kill natural being natural things. So it's, 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 it's terrible. Hydrogen is very clean. I mean, hydrogen is the most abundant element in, in the cosmos. It's pretty hard to extract it from water, but you know, we know how to do it. So we could start an industry that would do that. Uh, this would be great for the oil companies because, you know, they reject hydrogen. They can't sell it to anybody. So the, uh, this would be, you could build a huge industry around hydrogen. Um, so the, the president of Toyota explains all that, and then he turns to the car. He's got the glass under the tailpipe where water has been dripping because the only exhaust from a hydrogen car is pure water. It recombines hydrogen with oxygen to power the car, and the result is water. So the water drops out, drops out of the glass and drinks it. Now that you've been in television for a long time, you know that's an effective, that's an effective demonstration. You know, now uh, why? Your question is absolutely right. I mean, why do we assume that you know a craft from somewhere else would have very, very esoteric? Components. Uh, maybe they just use hydrogen. You know, uh, the whatever they use, it doesn't have an exhaust because again, the kids. So, so the object at you know 
um, was about 14 feet tall, 14, 15 feet high. Um, and there was a floor. So I asked Jose when he was inside, what kind of floor was it? Well, the floor was flat. Okay. So they went, they went to the trouble of having a flat floor in this other way, you know, avocado-sized object. Um, they, from the calculation, there would be about two and a half feet under the floor, over maybe seven or eight feet, where you could put an edge. There is no opening. Okay, they, there were some bumps under the, the thing. It wasn't damaged, by the way, so it must have been extremely hard, because again, it it, it plowed an avenue all the way down the hill. It wasn't broken. It was there was no break. There was. Uh, it was, you know, there was some friction traces, but it wasn't open. We don't know what was inside. I mean, if there is a propulsion system, it's got to be inside. How do you do that? Okay, so, again, uh, the, the craft was taken over. It would have been taken over by Project Manhattan. That's the Atomic Energy Commission. And we have one more proof of where it went. Um, Remy Baca, who was a little kid, grew up and went to Washington. He became involved in politics, and he was uh, instrumental in getting the, the governor of the state of Washington elected. And one time when, when he was with her, um, she showed him the, uh, the report from the Atomic Energy Commission about the object. She didn't let him keep it. Or, or read it, but she showed him the official report. Now, in the secret system of the United States, the system of classified documents, you know, you've investigated, you know, I've been exposed to it. There, there is a main, a main system which goes through the Pentagon, you know, a, a confidential, secret, top secret, and the various flavors of secrecy on top of that, or aside from that. Then there is the, the foreign, foreign intelligence secrets that go through the State Department, primarily, mainly the diplomatic secrets, okay? not the CIA secrets, but the diplomatic, would go to the State Department. And then from there, on request, on need, they would be supplied to the White House or to Congress and so on, on a need-to-know basis. But then there is an, a third level of a third type of classification, which is the RP and Q clearances that are what you need to work, if you're a physicist, to work at Livermore, at Lawrence Livermore, at Los Alamos, and so on. Those are the atomic secrets. There is no reason why people at the CIA should have those secrets unless they work on atomic, you know, on nuclear secrets. Uh, so that, that's why this is not in the Air Force files. This is not in the CIA files. This is not in anybody's files. It, it never came out. It came out because we have the witnesses and we can talk about uh, freely, but we would never get, you know, uh, unless you're really inside the atomic secrets, you would never have permission to have, to have access to that level of classification. And you wouldn't know about it. The president wouldn't need to be told about it unless there was something that came up specifically on that topic where the 
today it would be the Secretary of Energy who would have authority. It used to be a Atomic Energy Commission, and it, you know it changed names uh, over the years. But that's where it would be. And we also know from uh, testimony from the man in charge of the government project in Canada, who was given a, a piece of something that had been shot by one of our pilots, a Navy pilot, over Washington in 1952. He had been, uh, the, the Canadian guy had been given a piece of that. And the, 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 the American officer who gave it to him told him that this was classified higher than the atom bomb in the United States. Okay? So we, we, we know all that. I mean, this is not something where there is controversy. I mean, it's on record. Why do you suppose this thing crashed? And are there other explanations that make sense for the other alleged crashes? For example, lightning, powerful radar? Or are some of these crashes not crashes at all? Could it be that they're made to look like a crash, so we've got a, a new toy to play with? Uh, I think somebody is trying to get our attention. And evidently, in this particular case at Trinity, uh, they, they, got, they got our attention. And uh, I think that's why, that may be why uh, there has been so much caution about using you know, the nuclear uh, explosions, nuclear, you know, nuclear bombs in, in war, in anger. Uh, the, because that, that mystery has never been resolved. It makes sense why a non-human intelligence has an atomic bomb going off, even somebody from outer space, uh, you know, some other uh, some other system. You don't necessarily believe that these visitors are from other planets. They could be, but is it possible that they live here? That they they're concerned about the planet because, in in a sense, they live here. Well, you know, in the forties and fifties and sixties, it was. Uh, I think it was legitimate to assume that if something like that was seen, that it would be a spacecraft. Okay? Because we were starting to build spacecraft. We had rockets. We're still firing rockets, you know, big, bigger and better. We don't have that technology. But we could assume that an advanced race somewhere would have, could have something like that. If you talk to a physicist today, not the ufologist physicist, but just a, you know, a straight down the line physics professor, you'll say that's not the only hypothesis you should look at. Because now we know there could be parallel universes, there could be other forms of energy we haven't discovered. And by the way, when I teach my class in physics, I teach quantum mechanics on Monday, and I teach general relativity on Tuesday, and there are a few bright kids who say, sir, you know, how come they don't match? Okay, you, you, you just said that, <laughs> that there were an infinity of dimensions and then you talk about Einstein and he doesn't say that, okay? So, uh, you know, come on, I mean, how do we resolve that? Well, somebody may have resolved that little problem which we've never resolved since the days of Einstein. And, uh, you know, so if, if you take that seriously and physicists take that seriously, there could be... Like Dr. Heideck used to say, you know, in his lectures, 
there could be another Earth five minutes ahead of us. You know, and there could be ways to come from one to the other or to communicate from one to the other. People will argue a secret like this cannot be kept. Something crashed at San Antonio, New Mexico. There were a lot of people who saw it. It can't be possibly be kept. Uh, the, the other crashes, Roswell, of course, a lot of things have leaked out about these cases over the years. But secrets can be kept. You worked in secrecy on this project because you didn't want ufologists to kind of poison the well before you got to write the book, right? Now back to it. We, we knew that we were going to disclose it, but we wanted to disclose the whole story. You know, we didn't want to give people bits and pieces of things. Because even now, you know, people come and, and, and they've read something about it and they say, well, they were kids, you know, kids lie all the time. Not those kids, not in 1945, not when you're 20 miles away from the first nuclear explosion on Earth, you know. And not when you have a father like, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Mr. Padilla. Uh, you don't you don't joke about that. You go you go to that little diner, you know. Well, I'd love to go there with you and you know get get a hot dog over there. Uh, it's full of the posters from that, you know, loose lips kill. You know, I mean those posters, those yellow posters, uh, very emotional. You know, you you you, you talk about what, something you've seen. You could get killed. You could get other people killed, you know. And um, the kids grew up in that atmosphere. You know, they, they, they grew up with that. And um, so they didn't talk when, when Roswell was all over TV. And they didn't talk, you know, after all that. They didn't talk to Heineck. They didn't talk to anybody. Because this was, this was something that was too profound for them. And also, inside, you know, that's very clear when you, when you speak even today with Jose, uh, with Mr. Padilla, uh, that it, it, it's still something that has changed his life, that he remembers very clearly. You know, there is this argument among psychologists, you know, what do kids remember? And the fact is that all of us, you know, sort of make up details or we don't exactly remember how things were there were a few things when i was you know three four five i i don't remember anything before i was about two but after that you know i i remember the end of world war ii i remember what i saw i was very fortunate that my father had been an officer in world war one he knew when there was danger uh, usually there was danger because things were flying from the sky, but he knew we couldn't hide anywhere. And uh, there was never a sense of fear, you know, in my parents. So I wasn't, uh, I wasn't exposed to that, that kind of fear of the war. The, the things I saw, I saw at a distance. I wasn't there when the house was blown up. We must have been in a shelter somewhere. We, did have shelters. Uh, there was no house when we came out. I remember that. The, there are things like that that, yeah, you may have been free at the time, but they are, they come back exactly as they happen. Now, I couldn't tell you what I did afterwards, 
it's not a normal memory, you know, that extends with a before and after. I, this is just, you know, three, you know, frames of the film. So much interesting research uh, going on right now. We're learning so much more. A week ago today, some of your former colleagues or current colleagues, uh, Colin Kelleher, Jim Lekatsky, and I put out a book about OSAP. I don't believe you've ever made any public comments about OSAP. Separate from ATIP, that was something different, but is there anything you want to say about the work you did? The, the, they praised the, the, the computer database that you created, but... Well, that, that was a big product of the project. Uh, they make that clear in the, in the book. There were a number of people working on it. I can... All I can do is confirm what their book says. It, it's accurate. I'm surprised at <laughs> how accurate it is because, you know, that, that database exists. And uh, it's not really a database. It's a, it's a data warehouse, you know, with a number of parallel stovepipes because you can't describe what a pilot has seen the same way as a kid or a trucker or a radar. Or, so you have to have a structure that cuts across and preserves a unique, you know, stovepipe parameters of an aircraft or, you know, uh, uh, another type of site. So the, uh, that's what we built. I designed it. The, the credit should go uh, to uh, Lieutenant Carol Kurth, who led the team that took it over from me. You know, I transferred it to them after the design was done. What was done was only one third of the work. You know, I mean, if we had, the, the plan was then to, to build an, another layer of authentication of the entire data warehouse, which were about 200,000 cases. Well, you know, 200,000 records by, you can, you can put in your, in your cell phone today. So it's not a big database. What's big is that every record was very long and complex, okay? And that took time to, to dug up, validate, translate from other languages and so on. We, we had translators, you know, interpreters and so on on the staff, and they were trained to what to look for, what to recognize. And then, um, so it is pretty big at the end of the day. And then there was a, a third layer that I designed and never implemented of, of AI, you know, on top of it. I mean, you need to use artificial intelligence. That's a proper use of AI to make sense of, of, of all that data. Are you, um, are you encouraged by the, the renewed interest in, um, among Congress and the media? <laughs> There's a lot of yeah, I, I knew you were going to ask that, uh, John. Yes, uh, of course. Well, I'm encouraged by the fact that, you know, we've gone two, two steps ahead. We've removed all the stigma. I mean, you have, you know, they have astronomy at Harvard embracing UFOs now, okay? That's never happened before. Remember the days of Dr. Menzel? Dr. Yeah. Menzel said, you're crazy to do this, you know? I remember when these guys went on TV saying, we shouldn't spend a penny on, on this stuff. Well, it's wonderful to see the scientific community waking up to that and say, well, you know, maybe there is something to that. Uh, the, you know, at the time uh, of the Condon report, I left the United States. I left 
behind an, an offer of a job uh, heading up a department at Northwestern of AI. You know, my PhD in 1967 was one of the first, I think it was the second PhD about AI applied to science after one PhD at uh, one, uh, one project at Stanford called Dendron that had to do with chemistry. Mine had to do with astrophysics and it worked. Okay, so this one, 1967, well, um, you know, we, it's appropriate to apply that technology to that. So we're making progress in that direction, finally. But we've also take, taken one step back, a step back that now if it's real, it has to be classified. I don't believe that. I believe it is real. I believe there are some legitimate classified issues. Uh, there were a few classified cases in Blue Book, very few. When I asked Dr. Heineck about it, he laughed. And he said, yeah, well, you know, the, 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 I can tell you what the UFO was. It was, you know, a, a, a light that a, a lady saw, you know, in the sky. I said, well, why does it have to be classified? Um, you know, we're sending this memo to the White House that this, this housewife has seen a light in the sky. Said, yeah, well, but, but you know, uh, it, it, she shouldn't have been there in that particular place where she was when she saw it. The place was classified. There's, um, there is a, a case uh, that's classified, you know, in, in, uh, from a ship, from a Navy ship, uh, a small ship that looks like a fishing ship. It wasn't a fishing ship. And they, their radar and, uh, uh, and they, you know, with the naked eye, they saw a UFO that reported. Fortunate, unfortunately, they were within a mile and a half of North Korea. It was a spy ship. Oh. Well, you can't, if you, if you put it, you know, on TV, you are going to expose, you know, the intelligence operation. The fact that those, they were not there looking for UFOs. I mean, they had to report it because it interfered with their instrument. So they're going to report it by the book. And by the way, they never stopped. That never stopped when people say, blue book stopped. Yeah, but pilots continued seeing things. And they were reporting that because they could have been intruders, you know, from Russia, from wherever. So th those things never stopped. And that, so the public has all these false ideas about it. So the, that should not be, if we're serious about that, we should declassify most of that. And we should declassify, you know, the, the data warehouse and all of that. I can't really talk beyond about that project, uh, even though I architected it and, you know, turned it over to uh, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, you know, Kurt, uh, who actually ran the project. So he should get the credit for that. And Colonel oversaw all of that, Colonel Keller. Uh, but I was there at the beginning as the architect. And I would have been re-engaging if the project had continued to build the AI which I had designed already. Jacques, uh, the public has been hearing about ATIP, Lou Elizondo, all, all of the, his colleagues, Hal, uh, for about four years now. And we know that that effort had a very narrow focus, military encounters with UFOs, nuts and bolts crap. OSAP, as we're now learning from that book, 
had a much broader focus. It looked at UFOs, but it also looked at other weird phenomena that seemed to occur in the proximity of UFO events. Can the issues uh, and the big questions about UFOs, UAP, visitors, other intelligences really ever be answered by only looking at the narrow view, or do we need to have, as weird as it is, a, a, an honest look at all the other truly strange stuff that come along for the ride? Uh, we, we need both, George. Uh, we, we need the, the, the new stuff. The reason it's so focused is that in the last five years, we've developed equipment which is unique at catching unknowns. I mean, it's catching them. We're not looking for unknowns. We're looking for, you know, Russian jets or Chinese jets. So, the, but in the last five years, you know, the, there have been these infrared cameras under the wing of F-18s and, and other equipment and better radar. You know, the radars on the Princeton were experimental radars. They were the very latest. So in the last five years, we've gotten data that the scientists can look at, that military, you know, uh, specialists can look at, and, and military contractors can, can, can work on that. So if it catches a UFO, then we're going to get a lot of data on UFOs. That's the hope. We're not quite there yet. Uh, although I trust, you know, I'll tell you who I trust. I trust the pilots with their eyes. You know, uh, Commander Fravor and the other pilots who actually saw the thing with their eyes. Uh, I trust them. Electronics, you know, there are a lot of things about electronics that have not been talked about in that limit case, you know, about how fast the thing goes from one place to another. Well, you know, there are a lot of things you can make happen to a signal that uh, people may or may not be clear to, to know about. I bumped into it just in my, you know, uh, work as in venture capital, looking at advanced electronics. You know, you, you see these patterns, you see these articles about some aspects of that, and you say, hmm, somebody's got a technology, you know, that could do those things. At some point, it's going to be a civilian technology to have, you know, an application in civilian, uh, civilian equipment. Until then, you know, it's behind the fence somewhere. But um, there is a memo from Raytheon to uh, the Navy, which is a multi-page memo. They don't say there are no UFOs, you know. Raytheon makes the infrared camera. They said, we sold you that infrared camera, and yes, it works. And, you know, we're proud of that. But be careful what you say about the images we give you. Because you told us, you know, you gave us a contract to deliver an infrared camera. Everybody talks about the images, about the pictures. Well, that, that, yeah, okay, that's a picture. It's really an infrared image of a temperature target. It doesn't tell you how far it was. It doesn't tell you how fast it goes. It doesn't tell you all I did all that. It's to distinguish, you know, a bioreactor from a single reactor and a aircraft. So you're, you're looking at a temperature signature of a target. You know, it's designed for war. It's designed for aerial combat. It's not designed to chase unknown things in the universe, okay? So they made it very clear. Yes, but be careful what we tell you. If you're talking about distance, you have to have another way 
of measuring the distance. So you have to match it to a radar return somewhere. You, you can't just say this was 15 miles away because you, we, we're not telling you that. Now, if it was a MIG, maybe you could say something about that. But if it's, if you suspect it's a UFO, you, you didn't give us a, if you gave us the characteristics of a UFO, we could design a very good camera to, to track that. But that's not what the contract said. Okay? So it's a, it's a classic memo. It's a great engineering memo. Now, people have extrapolated in all directions about how fast they went and how they disappeared. Well, there are lots of ways to make a signal disappear from a device, you know, including, you know, television set, uh, including, you know, the, this, this screen. So uh, let's not go there. The, the larger picture is that we know from the experience with Blue Book that military cases are at best 10% of all the reports. You know, some farmer in his field sees something. The kids in San Antonio see something that falls, you know, before them. That's not going to be reported to the Pentagon. I mean, why should they? Okay. The, if it's a bomber and they detect something, like UP-52 detecting something, yes, the record will go to, you know, the standard list, you know, White House, NSA, CIA, Department of Defense, you know, Coast Guard, whatever. I mean, whatever that's designed to do, it will go there. Uh, and nobody decides where it goes. You push a button, it goes to all of those. And uh, that's a military system. That's only 10% of the database. And the other 90% are people, civilians, reporting it to whoever, to a journalist, to their mother to whatever, to the newspaper usually, and that may or may not come to our attention. And then there is the rest of the world. I mean, the U.S., land mass of the U.S. is 4% of the rest of the world. The other 97%, you know, 96%, well, there's half of it is the Pacific Ocean. But, you know, there are a lot of other countries there. It's France, there is, you know, the, uh, Russia, there, which is many, eight times bigger than the U.S., uh, what happens there? What happens in Japan? What happens in China? You know, all of that we don't have. We have some data, but we don't have enough data. So if, if we're going to say something global about the phenomenon affecting mankind, we've got to look at everything. We can't just work from that exquisite little thing that the Pentagon has, you know, from, from uh, ASAP or whatever that project was called any other time. So I think the uh, BAS was the right, the right way to do it, augmented by what we can get from the classified data. Yeah, you have to be willing to look at experiences and reports in their totality, not just at what was the craft, how did it fly? Because as you have documented and written about for so many years, Passport to Magonia, uh, that these creatures that we now call aliens may have been what previous generations called elves or fairies or gnomes or, you know, the, the, this interaction that this other intelligence has had with us uh, for all of our existence, it's not easily categorized and you can't just solve it by studying flying saucer. Well, I, I worked for a few years with a, a cultural anthropologist 
who was also a psychiatrist, a, a real psychiatrist, and, um, and, and, and a, a full university professor. And he, he said, you know, I, I, I want to know, you know, does this only happen in the U.S.? These little creatures, you know, and, and these stories. Yeah, there are stories like that in, you know, English folklore, the fairies and so on. But, you know, how... So he went to the library and he came back and said, you know, there is no book other than Passport to Magonia about the global thing about these creatures. But they are in every anthropology book as a footnote. You know, they say, by the way, you know, on the way to exploring this pyramid, uh, the, the, you know, the camel driver said that uh, there were story in his family of, you know, a hundred years ago, they saw, you know, a, a little elf, or they saw a little a little creature, and those creatures are always described in the same way. They are pretty mischievous. They breathe our air, you know, like the one in San Antonio. They are about four feet tall, you know, and they do can, can do all these magical things. Sometimes they are invisible, and you'd be surprised you know, I was, a few years ago, I was at a, a panel at a financial conference, you know, in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, you know, everybody is wearing these robes and so on, and then President Clinton was there giving an address. Uh, the former prime minister of the uh, uh, UK was there giving a, a, a speech and so on, and we had a panel on UFOs. The organizers thought that it would be interesting, since the world press was going to be, to have another subject that would sort of open the minds of people. So Stanford Friedman was there. There were a number of scientists and so on. And so I had a friend in Saudi Arabia that I had met in Silicon Valley. It was a, a young man, a graduate student, who had been at Stanford for a while. And he was the son of a prominent family in, in Riyadh. So uh, he knew I was coming to be on that panel about UFOs with Stanton Friedman. So he invited me to his house. And that was very interesting because I met, you know, I didn't meet any women there. But I, I met uh, even his mother. But I met his father, his uncle, cousins of his. And, so and they had a place in the desert. They, they are still thinking even though Riyadh is a very, you know, massive, you know, uh, modern city, they are still thinking of themselves as desert people. So they had a compound in the desert where we went to spend the afternoon and the evening. And they wanted to talk about UFOs. Uh, these were sophisticated people. They had degrees in physics, engineering. They had been pilots in the uh, Saudi Air Force, which flies American jets. They... You know, they, they knew how a radar works and so on. So we are eating mutton with our hands, you know, sitting on, on a carpet. And they want to talk about UFOs. And we got into this thing about the, you know. And I said that in, in your tradition, you have these little people, the sylphs, you know. I mean, in, in the Koran, God didn't just create men and, and angels, you know. He also created men, angels, and sylphs. And, and uh, uh, jinns, you know, the, the, the jinns, which we call sylphs or whatever in, in Europe, 
the, the, the jinns could do many of these magical things, you know, they could appear and disappear, they were, they could be sharp people, they could be, and uh, you have these ancient traditions, and my, my young friend said, what ancient traditions? I mean, we still have them now. And I said, well, you know, this is modern Saudi Arabia, I mean, you're building skyscrapers and you have all these oil companies and you have modern technology, and Jets are telling me, you have jeans? I said, well, a cousin of mine was in the kitchen in my house, and he, he needed the, a, a, a pot that was on the, you know, on the stove. So he, he took the pot and emptied the hot water outside, you know, by the door. Uh, and then he, and what he didn't know was that there was a gin there. He couldn't see the gin. But when, when you do that, you're supposed to say, if, if you know, dear gin, if you're there, you know, I'm going to pour some hot water, so I, I don't want to hurt you. And the, the gin will disappear for good. Well, um, the, the, the young man was taken over by the gin. And he suddenly became crazy. Couldn't you know, talk in a strange way, couldn't, couldn't function, couldn't, and they didn't know what to do. Um, psychiatrists would be of no help. They called an imam. They have special imams who are trained, you know, just like in the Catholic Church, you know, people who can uh, talk to a demon and exercise a demon. Well, so this imam came, did some ritual, spoke to, set the young man in front of him, and addressed the jinn and said, to the jinn, you know, we, we're, we're sorry this happened. He did not mean to do that to you. He didn't mean to pour the hot water out of the kitchen. And uh, he would like to go back to a normal life as a human. You know, would you please free him? And the, the young guy came back to normal. Now this is today in a modern country, talking to people who fly jets and you know, do engineering and go to conferences with Bill Clinton, okay? This is not, you know, strange folklore from way back. This, you know, the story I'm telling you is just 10 years ago in a modern country. So, come on, I mean, let's, this has been with us for a long time. Is it the same thing? I mean, that's the real question. Is it the same thing or is it just a, you know, a new, Evolution of the same thing? Uh, do, are there other creatures that can go in and out of our reality? Well, you know, religion says that. Every religion says that. So, um, the problem is, again, we can't take it to the lab. Yeah. Uh, but now, maybe we can. You know, thanks to Paola, <laughs> thanks to Mr. Padilla, and thanks to that, we're going to get that you know, that object to talk. We've got the lab to do it. Jacques Vallée, it's always great to talk to you. Uh, the book with Paula Harris, Trinity, The Best Kept Secret, it's a terrific book. It's, it's a page turner. It's an adventure story. And as always, with your work, you are meticulous in documenting each step of the way, how you respond to certain questions. I, I love it. I love it.